0: Politics is about doing what your constituents want. According to political scientist and NYU professor Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, that's just how politics works. A consultant to the CIA and the Department of Defense, Bueno de Mesquita has built complex political algorithms based on this principle, developing mathematical analyses that draw on the logic of self-interest to predict civil wars, coup d'etats, purges, and political reforms. His work offers a new theory on why revolutions happen and why politicians act the way they do.
1: If you look at somebody like Donald Trump, you look at Donald Trump's actions, Donald Trump is not concerned with winning you or me over to his side. I think he has worked out that's a really unlikely probability. What he is trying to do is lock in his core constituents.
0: Bueno de Mesquita joins the Ivy podcast to discuss the influence of self-interest on politics from the level of the individual voter to the federal government. His insights provide clarity on the Trump administration's current actions and why a U.S. president may have no real political incentive to act in the interest of all Americans. He also offers an innovative solution to improving governance that would use computer programs to eliminate gerrymandering and ensure partisanship is equally distributed throughout the nation's congressional districts. Please enjoy our conversation with Bruce Bueno de Mesquita.
2: You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com.
3: I'm glad you're able to take some some time away from the book. How, how is that going with Alistair?
1: How's he doing? Uh, he's doing fine, and the book is progressing great. Mm-hmm. How, it's, it's Very early stage, but uh, uh, so it, what? What is
3: uh, subject-wise? What is this one covering? Uh, Political
1: instability, Uh, it'll be an academic book. Um, We have, uh, we we developed a number of years ago a theory called the selector theory, Um, and uh, we've been expanding it. This particular expansion uh, is is zooming in on uh, revolution, civil war, uh, coup d'etat, purges and political reform. Um, so we, we got the, the theory worked out, the mathematics of it worked out, um, we were just going over the uh, core statistical analysis and discussing w- the way we want to write this book is uh, so that all the math and all of the details of the statistics are in appendices. Mm-hmm. And the body of the text explains it in accessible ways to a broader readership uh, and presents the statistical evidence graphically. Uh, but we first we, we've spent the last few weeks uh, trying to pin down. The statistical analysis to be as close to the theory as possible. We think we've got it. Uh, and so we were just reviewing a bunch of tables to see now um, whether we're happy with what we've got and the sequence in which it would be presented. We just started writing at the end of last week.
3: And uh, <laughs> uh, I assume, you know. You probably are using the, the most recent sort of geopolitical case studies for this, such as, you know, always the example cited is is Turkey and what has been happening there recently.
1: Yeah, we will we will have exactly such uh, case analyses but we don't do i wouldn't for us use the term case studies we don't believe that you can learn anything through case study analysis Um, rather what we want to do is use cases to illustrate the logic of the theory we don't derive theory from events we derive theory from first principles mathematically Um, so for example uh, one of the areas in which there is a great deal of confusion among people who study these subjects uh, is that a lot of people study revolutions to try to understand why they happen. And uh, they almost all do it incorrectly, uh, if our theory is right. The evidence supports our theory. Um, so revolutions occur in our, well, uh, revolutions are uh, attempted in our theory under two conditions. There is a belief that the inner circle supporting the incumbent leader will defect from the leader, sit on their hands, or help the revolutionaries succeed or the revolution was unanticipated, they had not sorted out uh, what was going to be done by the coalition, in which case they will almost certainly fail. Most of the time when revolutions are contemplated the conclusion is, well, we're not going to get enough help, these are very costly events uh, and so they don't get attempted. Uh, So what we observe in the world of revolution is a biased sample. Uh, So in our conceptualization, revolution is a Consequence of the willingness of insiders such as the military to allow the revolution to happen rather than defend the leader. They do that when, for example, they believe that the leader is dying and so won't be there to continue to do- deliver money to them in the future. So it's a, it's a, a much more nuanced and complex relationship. And then we turn to examples to help people understand the ideas by illustrating them. Uh, for example, uh, The Iranian military did not defend the Shah when Khomeini brought his revolution back to Iran. The Egyptian military did not defend Mubarak uh, when he faced uh, mass uprising. The military did defend Erdogan against the masses, Um, but then and against insiders in his coalition attempting to overthrow him. So you have to look at the way these things are tied together before you can begin to comprehend what actually is likely to happen or what you can do about it. Um, So, for example, a very important difference between Erdogan and the Shah or Mobutu um, and so forth is there's no reason to believe that Erdogan is uh, seriously ill. Whereas there was good reason before the fact to believe that the Shah was seriously ill, that Marcos was seriously ill, that Mobutu was seriously ill, um, and Mubarak suffers the uh, most serious illness of all—very old age. So anyway, that's that's what we're doing.
3: So, so in regards, I actually wanted to see if you could, um, you know, maybe go further on that point in looking at both of the situations in Turkey and what happened in Iran with the Shah. Um, It it seems like the military in Iran I don't know if they were banking upon the fact that the character of the military, you know, the the sort of secular aspect wasn't going to be impacted by a change of government. While, for example, in Turkey, as we know, you know, the military has always been seen as, you know, the guardians of the secular nature of the Turkish Republic. Yet there were elements within the military that were both pro-Erdogan and then elements which were against. And you saw those elements then lose out in essentially this gamble this coup as they called it
1: yeah so in our theory um I don't want to say that ideology is unimportant, but it's of minor importance, that, that's oh, I'm gonna be again, that's a hard thing for people to understand. It's, it's of minor importance because it's already fully discounted in everybody's calculations. They, they know that information. So they've already made all the necessary adjustments to it. So in the case of Erdogan, for example, he had removed from the senior military leadership almost every general who uh, was more oriented towards a secular government than he was. So he had pretty much already locked in the military. Then there was the remnant that was willing to contemplate uh, a coup because he was going in a more religious direction they liked, but there weren't enough of them left to succeed. Um, So it it wasn't... at that stage, it's not so much the ideological orientation as it is. uh, And and uh, sorry, Turkey is actually a good example of this. Is this guy going to continue to deliver private benefits to me or am I going to be cut out? So the secular military could see they were being cut out of the future flow of benefits by Erdogan, so they no longer had a reason to support him. Ideology is a convenient explanation for that, but we don't actually need ideology to explain it. All we need is their expectation of future rewards was at risk, and therefore they had no reason to remain loyal to him.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, maybe a, um, a good example of that too is Obviously, the situation in Syria, people argue that, you know, the military and many of the, the centralized institutions stuck by Assad purely based upon, you know, the religious and ethnic makeup. But, um, you know, as you said, uh, it really ties into to resource distribution and, and you do have you know, members of other religious groups who have been staunchly pro-Assad, not necessarily because it's in their religious interest, but because he gives them that access to those resources. And there's, I th- I think sometimes people make the mistake of associating, you know, the Assad regime's geopolitical alliances, looking at that from an ideological perspective and then equating that with what's happening internally in the country.
1: Yeah, actually, Syria is a really good illustration of these ideas. So if you go back uh, to the beginnings of the uprising against Assad uh, in 2011, by uh, 2000, late 2011, early 2012, there were significant senior military defections from the Syrian army. Uh, why? because Assad had run out of money to keep those people's loyalty, so they started to shop around for an alternative. In response to that, the Iranian government gave Assad $5 billion in cash. The Iraqi government gave Assad $3 billion in cash. Hugo Chavez visited and promised to build a, an oil refinery, and to greatly increase trade and the russians agreed to greatly increase trade so that once the flow of money was assured particularly the eight billion dollars of cash in hand the defection stopped because now he was able to turn around and keep the loyalty of the senior military who had been abandoning him uh the alawite commitment to assad we can attribute it to uh clan membership, ethnic agreement and so on and so forth but a much easier way to account for it which which accounts as well for cases where there isn't that sort of ethnic uh, agreement is the Alawites were being enriched by the Assad family in exchange for their helping to keep him in power. Uh, Almost all of the senior military leaders almost all of the general staff were Alawites Uh, and when the money was endangered then they began to waver. The money, so the the, the Iranians, as I say, and the Iraqis poured money in, and uh, their support for him was stabilized. It it is really about what can you do for me now, and when they believe you can't do for me now, no matter how much you've done for them in the past, uh, they start to look elsewhere. This was this was Ferdinand Marcos's problem. Marcos was suffering from lupus. Everybody in the inner circle knew that he was in an advanced stage, that he was really quite sick. And they began to shop around for an alternative because they could no longer count on him to continue to enrich them in the future. He had done wonderful things for, for them, from their point of view, for three decades. But his time was up. And so they looked around for somebody else. So, you know, loyalty, ideology don't run very deep. So so do you think
3: you can apply some of those those points that, that you mentioned, namely this, you know, a group's loyalty to a leader based upon sort of immediate returns uh, namely regarding you know a lot of commentators on the news experts at think tanks various politicians have talked about this surge of um populist rhetoric in the west um Based upon a feeling not only of disenfranchisement among certain groups and countries, but a lack of access to resources. Do you you think that's a valid point?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, I think so. If if you look at the folks who supported populist movements in, in France, uh, in the Netherlands, the anti-Brexit movement in the UK, the Trump supporters in the United States and so forth, uh, you are pretty much looking at a set of people who felt that under the previous regime uh, they were the losers they were not the ones who were being favored with uh, either policies oriented towards their interests or or direct benefits to them Uh, and and so they looked elsewhere if you look at somebody like uh, donald trump uh, and, and you and you look at donald trump's actions Donald Trump is not concerned uh, with winning you or me over to his side. I think he has worked out that's a really unlikely probability. What he is trying to do is lock in his core constituents. Now, the fundamental problem that Donald Trump has, as I see it politically, is that his core constituents and the Republican Party's core constituents in Congress are different people. So he has the problem of how does he get the Congress to adopt a legislative program that keeps his core constituents loyal to give him a shot at getting reelected. It's gonna be very tough for him. Uh, He won by very little. At the same time that they want to lock in their core constituents who are not Trump's. So there's a, this is one of the cases where the checks and balances will probably work very well in the medium term. What they are willing to do in the majority in the the Republican House and Senate and what Trump wants are disconnected. And at the end of the day, he can't write legislation, of course, so he will uh, sign or not sign their legislation. But what they want to advance benefits their constituents, not the American people. N- no politician is interested in the people. They are interested in their people. And their people and Trump's people are not the same. So it's a that's a fundamental problem for him.
3: So do you think that's an inherent flaw then? in the system is that it uh, essentially promotes almost a, a cynical version of self-interest because, you know, re-election relies purely upon constituents, not necessarily, you know, for lack of a better term, call it the greater good. And is is that, you know, one, a source of, of the symptom that perhaps you know, allowed someone like Donald Trump to become president, but also is, you know, one of the things undercutting the gridlock in Washington.
1: So I think you have the causality backwards there. Um, it is not the system that creates this cynical self-interest. It is cynical self-interest that creates political systems. The strength of, of our political system uh, is that the self-interest of the leader is tied to the self-interests of a larger group of people uh, than if you looked at the Russian system, uh, or obviously in, ext- in extremis the North Korean system. So our system produces greater accountability, but no system produces a a political incentive to do what is in the interest of the general society. I'll give you a very concrete American example of this. I have a favorite question that I pose to students. I will pose it to you. Whose taxes do the Republicans want to reduce? the taxes
3: generally of people of a a certain wealth class say of a higher earning bracket
1: and whose benefits do the democrats want to advance whose welfare do they want to improve
3: according to their rhetoric um the benefits of
1: quote unquote the working class. Okay, but so now let me give you an alternative answer to my questions, and you tell me why your answer fits the the evidence better than mine. Republicans who are disproportionately wealthier voters, want to reach into the pockets of people who vote for the Democrats and take money out and put it in the pockets of people who vote for the Republicans. Democrats, Democratic voters are on average lower income than Republican voters. Democrats want to reach into the pockets of Republican voters and take money out and put it in the pockets of democratic voters. That is, each party wants to take money from its opponents and give it to its supporters. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no ideology in that explanation. There's no partisanship per se. There is simply a recognition that there are overlapping coalitions to be assembled as voters. And what I need to do to win is to get enough resources that I can transfer to people who will who will vote for me because I transfer resources to them. Both parties do that. They do exactly the same thing. They just have chosen opposite sides of that Coalitional distribution. We think it's about helping the rich or the poor, but I suspect the politicians think it's about helping my voters and take and weakening your voters, and that works perfectly well for both parties. That works perfectly well for elections everywhere in the world.
3: So, you know? so based upon your point that you just made, I think um, it's it's very interesting to see the stark difference between, you know, this reality that is painted versus, you know, the narrative put in place by, you know, our political discourse in the sense that, you know, if, if, if democratic voters are generally of a group that makes less than Republican voters, how come the Democratic Party has become, you know, tainted with this image of kind of elite coastalism, pandering to a, a, a wealthier group, while Republicans have very much staunchly um, painted themselves as the defenders of, you know, what they would call real Americans, you know, Americans who, who don't make much, who live in parts of the country which are not as affluent.
1: So again, we want to distinguish very carefully between Republican voters and Trump voters, what you just described were Trump voters, mm-hmm. not typically Republican voters. Trump's political insight was to discover a large potential constituency that didn't vote normally, that he could turn out to vote and make himself competitive. That, If we just look at him in terms of uh, political insight, that was his, Political insight—it's not the Republican Party's political insight, uh, although it stems in part from the from uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, as early as 1977, having worked out that the Republicans had a hard time uh, because there were two sorts of people who were conservative: um, wealthy business people and um, blue-collar workers. And the Republicans were only winning the business-oriented people um, because their program was oriented that way. Uh, And so Reagan began to introduce the idea of appealing to blue-collar workers who normally either didn't vote or voted Democrat uh, to vote Republican by introducing what they were conservative about, which was social values, and uh, Trump has taken that. To um, an extreme, it's really not in their case, in, or in his case, about social values so much as well, some of that. It is about uh, their economic circumstances. But in any event, uh, the the democratic description that you offered is appealing to the coastal elites. Uh, is you know it's not quite accurate. Um, the Democrats appeal to uh, to union workers, um, teachers, uh, the uh, AFL-CIO folks. Um, and it is true they of course they, they appeal to well-educated elites uh, well-educated elites alone are not enough to get you elected and of course that's you know, the part they're not they're not getting elected they're not doing very well um, but they made a choice to appeal to uh, in the working class primarily to minority groups uh, and what Trump discovered was a another working-class group group uh, that the Democrats were not focusing on and were not winning uh, in different parts of the country. But I still, I I don't see this, not not that I don't believe that politicians enter politics in one party or the other with some ideological beliefs, but at the end of the day, ideological beliefs only take you so far you have to win. And to win, you have to appeal to a sufficient constituency to win. And each party has carved out a constituency and orients its programs towards that constituency. Uh, And when when that constituency shifts in its political orientation what it wants they shift. I have a favorite example of this Um, you'll remember many years ago uh, there was a senator from South Carolina named Strom Thurmond left the Senate when he was 100 years old, a little over 100. Uh, Strom Thurmond uh, ran for president I think in 1948 Uh, he was a uh, avid energetic segregationist but after the voting rights bill was passed in the mid 60s and the uh, South Carolina electorate uh, included many more African Americans than it had before he became much more concerned about finding ways to help African Americans whom he had oppressed his whole career because he needed their votes and so he became much more supportive of legislation to benefit african-americans after the voting rights bill than before we can be pretty sure what his true stripes were but his true stripes didn't matter once uh, trying to help african-americans became politically the right thing to do he did it because that's how you win so ideology takes a back seat to winning
3: and so i would like to pose a question then um you know A lot of people have been talking about this um, sort of the Supreme Court case in regards to uh, some of the shenanigans taking place in North Carolina on the local level in terms of, you know, voter disenfranchisement, gerrymandering, that sort of deal. Do you you think that example still applies in terms of kind of the the, the conservative legislature there, realizing that they don't necessarily need the African-American vote to stay in power thus doing everything they can to to suppress that because they know those votes will go
1: democratic. So my two most recent books, uh, The Spoils of War, Greed, Power and The Wars That Made America's Greatest President, and The Dictator's Handbook, um, both co-authored with Alastair Smith. In their final chapters, talk about ways to improve governance. Uh, the, The Spoils of War focuses particularly on the United States, and in both cases, the final chapter emphasizes in particular getting rid of gerrymandering and getting rid of any partisan calculations in the allocation of congressional seats and talks about how to do it Because gerrymandering is, of course, uh, an efficient way for state legislatures to lock in their uh, constituencies and lock out to the greatest extent possible people who vote for the party that the state legislature doesn't represent. Uh, Whether it's Republican or Democrat, both parties have a long history of gerrymandering. Um, They're simply... They're picking their voters instead of having the voters pick the candidates so that they can lock in winning, uh, which is, of course, as I said, what what they care about. Uh, Unfortunately, the main current proposal for... Uh, Diminishing gerrymandering, that is the efficient vote mechanism, uh, seems to me unfortunate. So the efficient vote mechanism is designed to make the conversion uh, of votes to seats ratio as equal as possible, whether you're a Republican or Democrat. So the efficiency argument is oriented towards balancing partisanship. I prefer to solve the gerrymandering problem differently. Uh, I prefer to solve it by using computer programs, which have existed for decades, to draw as compact a map of a congressional district as is physically possible, taking into account mountains and rivers and that sort of thing, um, so that there is uh, the right number of people in each district that is one person, one vote, completely blind to the partisan distribution of those people. Then the legislature's hands are tied from manipulating at the edges, even the efficiency argument, because it will always be error. It will never be exactly the same to tilt it one way or the other. Just allocate seats on the compact, that is the so to s- s- simplified, smallest geographic area um, that uh, that is uh, as close, you know, where uh, the the radii are about equal, um, that ensures one person one vote, the right number of voters in the district. Uh, You know, no Congress, no state assembly uh, is going to pass such a policy to to come into effect right away. So what Alistair and I suggest is that it come into effect in 20 years. By making it in 20 years, you greatly diminish the stake that any current legislator has in passing such a rule uh, because the likelihood that they will be in office in 20 years is low. Uh, And that helps to incentivize them to produce a future system that is partisanship blind, is blind to everything except the number of people. So it's not biased to favor one party or another, one ethnic group or another, one racial group or another, uh, immigrant uh, become citizens versus native born, nothing, just just get the right number of people. Uh, and you'll get fairly representative samples because as it turns out, People tend to cluster with like-minded people, so you'll and there are like-minded people on all sides of the ledger. You'll get a pretty balanced political picture that is not driven by partisan bias. And I, I wanted to emphasize again on on
3: what you just said, just for our listeners, in terms of it. The issue of self-interest and also the fact that this is done across both political parties. I know there was a recent expose on The Atlantic, actually, in regards to the gross gerrymandering done in Maryland. So it's not only, you know, a a Republican issue, but also the Democrats do it as well. We have a
1: map of Maryland district in the dictator's handbook in fact because it is so obscene Mm -hmm.
3: and you know on that issue of self interest uh, I know a, a very strong and central concept in a lot of your work has been that you know Individuals who participate in sort of political systems will are, are rational and rationality is defined in terms of or part of that is, you know, voting and acting in your own self-interest. And I wanted to get your thoughts on when voters vote against their self-interest and if if that maybe is where you see ideology come in there was um, a a very well-written book that came out in 2007 called what's the matter with kansas written by thomas frank Um, and the situation in kansas is very interesting because a lot of voters there essentially voted against policies that would have in the long run helped them namely you know keeping tax levels at a certain level to be able to fund you know publicly available goods but th- those were cut and and why do you think that's the case was that maybe where ideology trumped self interest or was or was self interest skewed <laughs>
1: Well, you won't be surprised to, say, to, to hear me say that uh, ideology does not trump self-interest. Rather, the argument, and other people have made similar arguments, Larry Bartels has made similar arguments, are confused. Um, first of all, um, rational people do what they believe is in their best interest, they may make mistakes. I don't want people to think that uh, rational people, that you point to an, an example where things turned out badly for somebody and therefore they weren't rational. They do what they believe is in their best interest. Now, best interest, is defined by the individual uh, if you um, believe that helping your buddies in the trenches is in your best interest because you will have a good reputation and so forth you might throw yourself on a hand grenade and be blown up uh, turns out badly for you but you probably do have a good reputation afterwards if that's what you value um the The idea that people do things that don't help them in the long term is a particularly pernicious confusion about uh, rational behavior. So, um, people certainly care about. How they do in the t- in the long term, but they care more about how they do today than how they do next year or in 10 years. People discount the future. They don't think. Uh, to not many people are willing to make great sacrifices today in order to have, for example, a better life in 30 years. That's, uh, you know, a simple fact. Yes, they get education so forth. Of course, why is education compulsory? Because they might choose otherwise to do things that are more pleasurable now rather than study math and so forth. So we compel them. So when we talk about self-interest, we have to remember that people care more about the near-term than the long-term. We have to remember that about politicians as well. I think every politician politician understands that policies that lead to great indebtedness uh, or great inflation or what, what have you, have deleterious long-term consequences. Heavy subsidies may have deleterious long-term economic consequences, but in the short term, they reward people who are happy to get the rewards and therefore reelect the politician. So the politician's long run is the next election. The voter, most people, are more oriented towards what's gonna do me good now. Yes, I care about the future. I'd like other people to take care of the future the environment is a really excellent example of this. Uh, I think our president notwithstanding, an awful lot of people understand that the uh, earth is warming and that that warming is partially due to human activity which could be changed. But it's very costly in the short term to change that behavior to produce real benefits for people's grandchildren down the road. And so as it turns out, while they talk the talk, they're not willing to make the sacrifice. So I think when people say that uh, individuals are acting against their self-interest, what they're doing is they're deciding what is in somebody else's self-interest and then saying, see, and they're not doing what I said is in their self-interest so they're not acting in their self-interest. We should ask people um, in a costly way, uh, what would you choose between doing something now or doing something that's beneficial in the future? Where it costs them to make the choice? And you'll see how often they choose the short term Mm -hmm. and
3: I wanted to you know maybe switch the the conversation over because I know you and I had um, a good exchange on you know how how do you define success from from a political angle? And I thought that was a very interesting concept. And I wanted to see if you could, you know, elaborate on that because you, you did make a point earlier on in terms of, you know, a, a politician... Are using you know the example of our current president of why would they want to change what they're doing if what they're doing is appealing to their core constituents and and do you think that right now the current administration in regards to to what they're doing sees themselves being successful
1: Well, I don't know if the president sees himself as being successful or not, uh, but I would make, uh, as I have made, the distinction that uh, for an individual's success may be achieving particular goals. Those goals are personal, normative. Uh, there's not a right goal. Um, the politician's goal in a democracy is to get re-elected. The politician's goal in a rigged system is to stay in power. Um, Similar goal to getting re-elected. So when we think about success as getting re-elected or staying in power, uh, so that that's a positive question as opposed to a normative question. The the way to think about that is what do I do to succeed at getting reelected? Well, a good place to start is what got me elected in the first place. So what I did worked. So why would I, I change what I did unless I have seen a lot of evidence that it is – alienating the people who brought me to power. So I don't think that Trump has seen much evidence yet that his approach is alienating the people who brought him to power. He has a very, very difficult situation. What's difficult about his situation is that if you go back to the election and you move something like 78,000 votes, Hillary Clinton would have won. So when we're talking about an election with more than 100 million voters, moving 78,000 is a very small number, so it's very, very hard, extremely hard, for Donald Trump to expect to get reelected. Because we see, for example, surveys that show that 96% of his voters are happy with what he's doing. I look at that and I say, if he's lost 4% of his voters, he does not have enough votes anymore to get reelected because he didn't have a 4% margin. So if he's lost 4%, he's in deep trouble. I'm sure he understands that at some level if he believes he can't get reelected. So what are his choices? His choices are to keep his core constituents happy in the hope that he will bring that 4% back and be able to win, and not have a lot of other voters enter the electoral system and so forth, or do whatever he feels like, because he thinks, well, I'm not gonna get reelected, in which case I don't face any real constraints. I might as well do what I want or what I believe in. And we are seeing both of those actions by him. Uh, We're seeing efforts to please his core constituents. He goes out, he gives speeches, he talks to people who love him to keep them loving him rather than talking to people who might be on the fence and try to persuade them. Uh, And then he does things like uh, his economic, keeping his business interests, which I'm sure he's sitting there and thinking, well, what the heck? Why not? I'm going to make make myself even richer. And what are they going to do to me? I'm probably not going to get reelected anyway. So uh, that for him, I think, is success. That is success for any politician, term limited politicians, uh, lame duck politicians do what they want because they're no longer constrained by reelection. So I think that's a that's a very critical point
3: that you just made, because does that then give us a, a clearer ability to 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 understand, it, you know, the grander scheme of the policies put forward by the Trump administration—that essentially, you know—some uh, uh, people have argued that um, being in office will moderate the positions of of the current president, and that's been not entirely true. And do you think, based upon that that mentality, that for you know going forward on policies such as you know the healthcare? reforms tax reform that is going to be done in a in a very specific way that will only that is made to appeal to essentially his his voter base
1: well again we have to separate his voter base from the members of Congress's Mm -hmm. vote base, there's not that big an intersection. So he will probably want to advance policies that benefit his base, and they will want to advance policies that benefit their base, and at the end of the day, he probably wants successes. So take the healthcare bill, for example. So he called the congressional bill great, and he had a big celebration in the Rose Garden. And then he seemed to discover that it was really bad for his core constituents, and he described it as mean and BS. Now he has the Senate proposal, and he's again going to be torn between, well, I want to get some. say, I passed legislation. I got rid of Obamacare. That's something that my core constituents want. <laughs> so we got a success. Oh, yes, it, it, it's, a, it's an awful bill for my constituents, but that's what the Republicans in the House and the Senate will, will see as maybe good for them. If they don't see it as good for them, it won't get passed. That's their problem. So he's very much seems to be defining that in terms of who am I as opposed to who are them, uh, uh, who are they? And if you think about this notion that they become more presidential, uh, meaning more interested in general welfare, that seems to me a, a, a wishful thinking notion. So let me offer examples both from Barack Obama and from George W. Bush So George W. Bush. Fought the Iraq War. It was unpopular with Democrats. It was not unpopular with. Republican voters. Uh, In Spoils of War, we have a a lovely graph comparing his popularity, bipartisan affiliation to Lyndon Johnson when he was president. There was a very small spread between Democrats and Republicans in disliking or liking Johnson's policies. There's a huge spread for George W. Bush. Something like 80% of Republicans were happy with him, and only about 20% of Democrats. He was doing what his constituents wanted. So he adopted a tax policy that didn't pay for the war put it on a credit card and instead he reduced taxes on his voters and he won his re-election in a landslide and shifted the burden to the next president happened to be barack obama who inherited economic disaster that was no problem for George W. Bush. He was no longer president. He did the single most important thing an American president can do. He got reelected. We look at Obama. and I, I, I have to say I, I made this comment um, during the early debates between um, Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Mr. Trump has just discovered this fact, which is being underplayed in the media now because, of, because it's at the wrong time with the wrong orientation. But. Barack Obama did not act on the Russian uh, hacking. And I commented on that, as I say, during the debates, that if Trump were a smart guy, he would have said to Hillary Clinton, why is the president whose policies you say you support not acting as commander in chief, protecting American security? Answer is he doesn't want to raise this issue to the fore and jeopardize, be seen as partisan because he thinks you're gonna win. So he put his partisan preference for Hillary Clinton's election ahead of his job as commander in chief in protecting American national security. Well, that's what politicians do. You know, I look at this, I, I, I'm reminded of, of a comment um, that one of Mitt Romney supporters, maybe it was Mitt Romney himself, made uh after he lost to barack obama he said well obama bought the votes of uh immigrants immigrant families and uh gay and lesbian uh families and so forth by suddenly changing his policies to support them and both alistair and i looked at this claim and said well of course romney's mistake was he didn't he he didn't produce enough benefits for people who might have voted for him to make them vote for him. Obama understood that the way you get elected is to deliver goods to the people who support you want and need. So he did exactly the right thing. You know, People look at this maybe in, in, in a way says, oh, that's politicians shouldn't do that. Of course they should do that. In a democracy, what we want the politician to do is represent the interests of their constituents. That is what they do. That's what George W. Bush did. That's what Barack Obama did. That's what Donald Trump is doing. Donald Trump's problem is he has very few constituents. So he's in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted
3: then to, you know, riff off on this concept that that you bring up in a lot of your work in terms of um, namely in your in your last book on. War presidents was the concept of war itself as using conflict internationally as a means of deflecting domestic attention towards you know any political difficulties, political failures, uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that in terms of you know for for someone like President Trump who is facing difficulties domestically, does it does it make sense to then? seek conflict abroad because that would be a means
1: of, you know, unifying a divided citizenry? So that's a great question. Uh, I'm a foreign policy voter as opposed to, uh, well, I obviously care about domestic politics, but I care and know much more about foreign policy, so I vote mostly on foreign policy. And my single greatest fear about Donald Trump is that seeing that his core constituency is tiny uh, and that he's inherited, despite his rhetoric, a good economy, so making it significantly better is a very tough thing to do. Uh, my greatest fear is that he will launch a foreign adventure that could lead to a war in order to rally people around the flag and increase his political support. Uh, I think there's a tremendous danger of that. Roughly two thirds of war presidents have gotten re elected. <laughs> Roughly one third of presidents who produced peace and prosperity instead of war uh, got reelected. So, uh, as it turns out, at the margin, presiding over the death of a lot of Americans in war is much better for your reelection prospects than presiding over a vibrant economy in which per capita income rises rapidly uh, and few Americans, if any, die in war. Rutherford B. Hayes produced pretty much peace and especially prosperity. Rutherford B. Hayes didn't get reelected. Shockingly, Millard Fillmore was the third or fourth best performer on growth and per capita income in American history. He didn't get reelected. Uh, but the guys who fought wars, even James Madison, who fought a ridiculous war in 1812 without any sensible purpose without any sensible um, reason or, or uh, benefits and tremendous cost on a proportionate basis worse than the Iraq War of 2003, he got reelected. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very fearful uh, that Do- that's the path that Donald Trump will choose to go down to, to expand his constituency.
3: I think as um, as a student of history as, as well, you see in a lot of, uh, namely in, in more ancient texts from... Greece and Rome, just the, the sheer power that certain political figures had who were seen as, you know, warriors in, in getting, at least attracting the popularity of their citizenry. And it's very interesting to see sometimes that, that parallel, even with our more modern society, in the sense that the dynamic is still is still there. Um, and, and, and in this case with, with, with President Trump, you know, there's a lot of geopolitical flashpoints around the world right now not more so than five years ago but at least the the news news has very much latched on to to these stories and and do you think that there is one particular case right now that could be you know the the site of of this process you know a lot of people have been talking about syria uh, what's happening in the Middle East, but
1: also North Korea, um, things things like that. So I think there are three most serious prospective locales for the United States to go to war. Syria is one, North Korea is the other, and the South China Sea is the third, not necessarily in that order. Um, the South China Sea uh, is one of the most important maritime regions in the world, very heavy um, traffic in, in, in merchant shipping. It's one of the most important fishing regions in the world. Uh, and it has abundant uh, natural resource wealth in the deep water under the rocks that the Chinese now are trying to call islands, um, places like the Spratleys, the Scarborough Shoal, and so forth. Um, the Chinese have uh, redrawn the map to and built out of rocks these are technically defined terms by the way the uh, law of the sea uh, requires that to be an island and therefore to have territorial um, water claims around it uh, the, the, the the terrestrial body needs to be above the surface of the water all the time uh, so the Chinese have dredged and constructed islands where there were rocks that were submerged much of the time. Uh, So there's a real danger that um, rather than finding a negotiated solution to that problem, that Trump might see it as a a place to become aggressive. It happens to be a very important area where reasons to be tough exist. On the other hand, it could be a very dangerous and costly war if the Chinese resist. If they back down, it's another story. Uh, North Korea is obviously a much easier target for the United States to take on. But in the process of taking on the Kim Jong-un regime, uh, there is the near certainty that Kim Jong-un's government would launch a massive attack on uh, the Republic of Korea, particularly on Seoul, and potentially kill millions of people in the process. That's very dangerous. So it would seem like a region where patience is the way to go, because... Uh, Um, The structure of the North Korean regime is working great for the Kim family, but long-term, it's not a sustainable political structure. And Syria, as you mentioned, is another possibility, uh, where the, the danger, I don't think it's a significant probability, but the real danger is a clash with the Russians, uh, that we shoot down Russian planes, or they shoot down American planes, uh, and there is a feel a, a, a felt need to retaliate by one side or the other, could escalate. Um, so the, the moment for Syria, it seems to me, in terms of uh, of, of a U.S., significant U.S. intervention passed. In 2011, it might have made sense, it doesn't make sense now. Um, but. One could imagine Trump in any one of those three places Uh, more remotely, could imagine him thinking about intervening in Yemen. Uh, That would be less dangerous, although it would be dangerous, don't get me wrong, be less dangerous, but it also would be less politically rewarding. So, yeah, uh, there's there's a danger. Those three places seem to me the big flashpoints uh, where there's a real risk that his actions could lead to war. And, and what role do you think international consensus would
3: play into this? I know um, our current president has shown somewhat of a, a disregard for uh, a number of international conventions. And would that have you... Does that have you worried? In in the sense that um, most sitting U.S. presidents, or at least the past two or three, have relied on an an alliance to essentially legitimize military interference. And would that be the case now, or would it be more? um, And is it even possible for the United States to just go solo? Ah, you
1: underestimate my cynicism. Having an international alliance, a consensus for military action uh, is a domestic question, not a foreign question. The domestic question is, do my voters feel that my action is legitimate if I have broad international support? Barack Obama's voters clearly thought that. And so Barack Obama wouldn't act without broad consensus support. George W. Bush's voters were less strongly inclined to that. So he had the coalition of the willing, not a broad coalition supporting the war in Iraq, just a coalition of the willing. Trump's supporters don't seem to care about that. So he doesn't care about it. Uh, Now, in terms of military success, that's, you know, that's another question. The United States is capable of defeating pretty much any adversary. It's a question of whether the cost of victory is worth the benefit of victory. So, um, He has to worry about if he starts a war with North Korea, for example. In the short term, he could expect a rally around the flag effect. That's common when we have a military adventure. But in the longer term, he has to worry, well, will – potentially new supporters think this fight wasn't worth the cost that it imposed. We were responsible by starting this fight for the death of potentially millions of South Koreans, for example. Is that a cost worth getting rid of Kim Jong-un? And I suspect that what what he would discover is very few Americans, Mm -hmm. if they think about it, think that that's a cost worthwhile. Is getting rid of Bashar al-Assad worth the risk of a war with Russia? Probably very few Americans, when they reflect on it, will think so. So that's his problem. The problem is not, can I get big international support? The problem is, do my constituents demand a lot of international support? His don't. So perhaps I know, you know, all these situations
3: are very different. Um, as, As a student of the Middle East, I see the situation in Syria to be very unique in the sense that there are a lot of competing regional interests and that a situation like that could something could flash off with an American ally and that then be a um, relatively acceptable excuse, in a sense, to get involved. Um, Just because, you know, the recent actions by namely a lot of the Gulf states, you know, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and their interactions right now with Qatar show, you know, a willingness to um, throw off the caution of the past for what they would deem decisive action.
1: I don't particularly see Syria as unique. I mean, in some way, every dispute is unique. The specific parties change from each dispute. So the underlying basic issues are are not unique. Um, would, Allies rally round a US effort to overthrow Assad? Well, if they were going to rally, one would have thought they would have acted in 2011. In 2011, there was not yet and ISIS. The opposition in Syria was more oriented towards civil government, not necessarily democratic, but civil government. Uh, That could have been promoted. In fact, I argued in 2011 that uh, when the United States was contemplating intervention in Libya in intervening in Libya was a terrible mistake. There was no prospect of civil society in Libya, but there was in Syria. Syria was a place where it might have made sense. Syria would have been a place in 2011 where it would have not been hard to sell the British and maybe the French and so forth on supporting the effort. To promote a civil government might even have been possible at that time to have leveraged bashar al-assad into becoming a reformer but today that's a completely different story if if they had that inclination. 2011 would have been the time to act on it i i don't really see uh america's traditional allies rallying behind donald trump in an adventure in syria um and take the risks of a conflict with the russians essentially uh the united states government over the last uh, six years has ceded syria to the russians and it's going to be you know be very hard very risky potentially very costly to reverse that so i don't see our allies going to bat for Donald Trump, um, and hopefully
4: uh,
1: he will be constrained. As I say, his constituents are apparently America firsters. They probably don't care about, not that they would object to having support from the British or whatever, but they don't care about it. So I don't think it weighs heavily in his calculation. And. On that note, I think um,
3: to to sort of to wrap this conversation up, I just wanted to again reiterate your point in regards to playing to one's constituents, playing to their needs, and that really dictating the the pathway of politics in the United States. And I, I just wanted to see if you could simply clarified that again to our listeners, because I I think that is the most critical point of this discussion is is the fact that that is very much a dynamic at play, and it it supersedes what we see as ideological division.
1: Yeah, the job of of democratic leaders is to do what is in the interest of those people that who they represent that is the people who brought them to power. It is the notion that there is a national interest is a deeply flawed notion. If I had a chalkboard here, I could draw you a simple picture and show you that I can get without changing anybody's opinion. It's easy to have a coalition in which two thirds of the American people support increasing defense expenditure and without changing a single person's opinion to have two thirds to support decreasing defense expenditures so the, the candidate identifies his coalition he identifies what they want he calls that the national interest and he says look i've got a huge majority in favor of this and trump doesn't have a huge majority but if they did when they do and then we believe that is the national interest politics is about doing what your constituents want let me give a very two very tough examples of this <laughs> most americans if asked think that they are in favor of promoting democracy around the world and supporting democracy and if you ask most americans were we right to cut off assistance to hamas when they won in a democratic election in palestine a number of years ago almost every american will say, yeah, we did the right thing to cut them off because they don't have our interests at heart. They don't have our allies' interests, Israel's interests at heart, and so forth. Those are true statements. When push comes to shove, what we expect of democratic allies is that they will pursue policies similar to what our constituents want. And if they don't or won't, then we oppose them. We oppose the overthrow of the Shah that brought in the Khomeini and now Khomeini regime. Now, to be sure, this is hardly a democratic regime, but it's much more democratic than the Shah's regime was. But the Shah's regime didn't shout death to America, and this regime does. If we look at foreign aid, America, like almost all foreign aid donors, not just a statement about the United States, almost all foreign aid donors disproportionately give money to uh, to dictatorial regimes. If they give to a democracy, they give more money, but they are much less likely to give to a democratic government than to an autocratic government. Why is that? Well, what foreign aid appears to be about is I'm going to give you money in exchange for which you are going to give me policy concessions that at the margin are beneficial to some of my supporters and of course if you liked that policy if your voters like that policy you would have been doing it anyway so you have to be adopting policies that your citizens your subjects don't like well if you're the leader of a democratic country you can't afford to give up policies for, for money, unless it's enough money, to compensate your supporters for the loss on the policy. But if you give it to a dictator, they just have to bribe a few cronies to keep them in power, a few generals, a few senior civil servants, a few family members. So they are more willing to give you policy concessions. So as it turns out, when we give aid, as we overwhelmingly do, to dictatorial regimes, it is because it is benefiting our constituents at home. And it would be anti-democratic to give money to democratic leaders whose, whose people want policies our voters oppose. So it's not anti-democratic to give to Israel. Israeli voters have very similar policy preferences on many issues to Americans, but it is anti-democratic to give assistance to Hamas or to the Iranian regime because their voters want policies at the th- to our wishes. It is about satisfying our constituents. That is the job of democratically elected leaders, not satisfying the interests or will or desires of people who are not our constituents. That's how politics works. It's unpleasant, it's cynical. I may wish it were otherwise, but if you look at the reality of the world, that is how politics works. <laughs>
3: And on that note, uh, I would like to thank you, one, for your honesty and also for the clarity that you've brought to, you know, a very complex political situation. And, and to our listeners, again, um, our guest today was Dr. Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, uh, the Julius Silver Professor of Politics and Director of the Alexander Hamilton Center for Political Economy at NYU. Uh, please check out his books. Uh, As you heard, he has a new one coming out and it sounds extremely interesting. And Bruce, thanks a lot. Thank you, my pleasure.
2: That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, The Social University. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.